Well, good morning. Uh, I was surprised to hear the World Vision representative talking about a Volkswagen this morning. Uh, unless you're driving a Volkswagen, $35 isn't going to fill up your gas tank. It's only about half of it. <laughs> and uh, another thing I found out is getting ready for this message. I like pulpits a lot more than I like Volkswagens, or even GTOs for that matter. Now, it's been a long time, so I brought a timer, so I won't go over. Uh, <laughs> you folks, keep your eye on this for me, will you? Now, in all uh, serious, I don't know if we should pray for this or not, but I heard that uh, a local farmer, right after he finished putting his grain in his bins, had a real serious fire and burnt the barn and the bins right to the ground. The, uh, the wife called the insurance company. And she said, hey, we just had a really bad fire. It ruined our, all of our crops, our barn. And we have a million-dollar insurance policy. Would you just send us the money? And the insurance agent said, well, wait a minute now. Insurance doesn't work quite like that. Uh, first, we've got to send out an appraiser. And then we've got to send out an inspector to see what the value of what you lost is. And then we will replace that with something of comparable value. And the woman thought for quite a while. It was silent. And she said, well, if that's the case... The way insurance works, I want to cancel the insurance policy on my husband. <laughs> now, the, uh, the powerhouse is what I've called my message this morning because we've been coming here for a while now, and quite frankly, Beth and I have mentioned this before, that if we had just moved to town, this is the church we would have come to. This is a great assembly. Uh, you should be full. You should, you should have building plans because of the, everything you've got. This is a great place to worship. I appreciate you folks, and I thank you the, for the opportunity to come here and share the word with you this morning. Now, the, the next slide gives us the message and the passage I'm going to look at. I think that uh, this uh, passage in Matthew is a rather keynote, actually, to our daily living, as well as to church growth, to church function. Uh, it's known as the Great Commission, and I think the message of this Great Commission, uh, 28, and we're going to look at 18 to 20, but I want to read the paragraph beginning with verse 16. Uh, I think that Jesus Christ powers the church through discipleship. Now that's not just empowers, but powers. Jesus Christ has set up the system of church. Now think with me a little bit for a bit of a scope here. Uh, Matthew crashes onto the scene of life of the first century world after 400 years of biblical silence. There was a lot going on, though, socially, culturally, in that 400 years. The world was set up for Jesus to come with the language, with the trade routes, with all that stuff that I'm sure you've heard before from other preachers. But Jesus Christ came on the scene at a time in the religious spectrum where the religious people were just that, simply religious. They weren't related to God. They had a tradition that they thought got them home free. If you remember some of the prayers of the, the, uh, the, uh, in, the, in the Gospels where the, the Pharisee and the, uh, and the tax collector go up and pray, and the Pharisee says, boy, I'm glad I'm not a, a, a pagan or a, a woman or a dog, and the, the uh, Tax collector just says, oh, God, forgive me. Trey talked about that some. The Jews thought that because they were Jewish, that was enough. The relationship with God didn't count very much. Jesus Christ crashed into that scene. And that's what the Matthew Gospel 
describes the reality of his divinity, his virgin birth, and all that goes with that, all of the miracles that he performed, and the way the religious leaders of the day, the, the traditional religious leaders of the first century, rejected the God they claimed. In fact, they ultimately killed him. And just to refresh our memory of just who Jesus Christ is, we're going to look at the cornerstone of power in a minute here. But I'd like to read this passage, uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and we're going to focus on 18 and 20. Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now before we go any further, would you join me as we look to the author in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here and to share your truth with these folks. And I just pray that your spirit will teach us and guide us. I pray that we might grow closer to you, might be more effective, enthusiastic, and bold to stand for the truth of your word. Thank you for your great goodness to us, your mercy, and now we ask for your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing that I think we see is the cornerstone of power up here. It would be the next slide. Uh, Jesus was the Christ. We say that. It's just words on a page. It's something that's part of our understanding of our tradition, actually. But think with me about just what that means. And by way of review, this part will be like a Bible bee here. Uh, I would like to look at John 1.1, because Jesus the Christ was God incarnate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ was God. Then if we look at Hebrews, it tells us a very similar thing. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, The Son, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus Christ was fully God. That's hard to conceive for me anyway. I can't get my mind around that. But he was fully God but yet he experienced life completely as a human being. That's what Hebrews 4 tells us, and this is a great encouragement to me, I might add. I hope it would be for you as well. Verse 15 of chapter 4 in Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus Christ, who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. He experienced life as a human completely, yet he was God. Wow. I'm going to ask him some questions about that when I finally get there. The, the point is that he was God who chose to give up the glories of heaven and come here and live with a sore back like we do, or a, a struggle with hunger and tiredness and all that the human race is consigned to. I don't want to read the Matthew 4 passage, but Matthew 4 tells us that after he had fasted for 40 days and nights in the desert, Satan himself came to challenge Jesus Christ and tempt him. That's part of what we read in Hebrews 4. 
he's tempted in every way, such as we are, but by the main source of evil, Satan. Now, many times I'm sure you think, and I think, when we're tempted, ah, Satan's really got my attention today. Boy, Satan is tempting me. Well, you know what? Quite frankly, I don't think any of us are important enough for Satan to pay attention to. He's probably got a bunch of demons that are harassing us. I wouldn't doubt that. But Satan is paying attention to the keynote leaders of our world. You know, the, uh, the Barack Obamas, the, uh, the James Dobsons maybe in the religious world, the Chuck Swindolls, the big guys that have huge impact. That's who Satan's focusing on. And in the Matthew passage, Satan himself came to Christ. And by the way, another sermon for another day. Satan used the Bible when he challenged or tempted Jesus. He just twisted it. He distorted it. He used the word of God, but twisted it to try and get Jesus to worship him. It's still going on today, Bible twisting, scripture twisting. There's books written about that, actually. But Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He can relate to our temptations, our weaknesses, our struggles, the things we have to decide in life. You know, in the next slide, it'll show us here that he did only good things. He did the things that made him popular. Remember, he had to go out into a boat to get away from the crowd so he could preach to them. He had to go up on a hill so he could preach to them. He had to tell his disciples to come. Let's get away from these guys for a while so we can pray because he was so popular. Jesus Christ was a good guy. He wore a white hat all the time. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He exercised demons. He raised the dead. Now, if you had somebody in the neighborhood that was doing that, wouldn't you go there and try and get your aches and pains fixed or your cousin or Aunt Matilda healed or whatever the situation might be? Of course. He was a good guy. They loved him. They wanted him to be king. He says in John 5, I I know your hearts. I'm not going to uh, let you make me your ruler yet. But, But... Jesus Christ was a good guy. Next slide will show us that when he started to say something about their tradition, when he said, hey, you guys don't have all your ducks in a row as you think you do, that's when they decided that they didn't want him anymore. When he said that what they believed wasn't correct, when he started to challenge their traditional religious beliefs, that's when they ignored him. That's when they mocked him. That's when they denigrated him, ultimately abused him, and brutally killed him. It wasn't because he did all the good things. They didn't kill Jesus Christ because he raised their dead and healed their sick and fed them when they were hungry. They killed Jesus Christ because he had the audacity to tell them that what they were believing or practicing wasn't right. Remember, he tells them in the Gospels repeatedly, if you'd love the Father, you would love me. If you love me now, you'll keep my commandments. That's one of the earmarks of true faith is obedience. We'll get to that in just a minute. But after they killed him, they thought, hey, we got rid of this guy. This dude is done. He's out of here. He's history. (laughs) He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And that that, uh, resurrection, that proved that by his power, he conquered death. Jesus Christ proved unequivocally that he was God. Now, today, in our very subjective, humanistic, Darwinistic evolution world, all that is shrouded in a cloud of mystery and suspicion. But I want to tell you that there is more documentation for the reality of the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ than there is for the existence of Herod. If they say that what we have as documentation, as, as actual textual evidence, hard fact Greek manuscripts, is not worthy of 
being historically accurate, they have to close every history department, ancient history department, in the world. Because we have more evidence for the truths of the Bible than there is for the existence of, of uh, Herod. Uh, it's crazy. They're, they don't play on the same playing field. He rose from the dead and proved that his power was power over life and death. In fact, the next slide will show us that Jesus has all power. In heaven, supernatural realm. He has power over what we can't see, what we read about, what we suspect maybe when we see some of these evil movies on TV and the, all the uh, horror flicks with Satan and all the grotesque stuff that they're making popular. He's got the supernatural power over that. On earth, the natural realm, he has the, the control or the uh, power over everything that goes on in our world. And you know what? That's why we have to live by faith. Because you know what? It doesn't seem like it. <laughs> why would Jesus Christ call my family here from an established ministry and business so I get railroaded? Ah, I'd suggest that uh, that causes us to have some faith. I hope that's what I'm responding in. My wife and children are. Why do good things, I mean bad things, happen to good people? I mean, that's how can Jesus Christ be in control? How can he have this power? That's faith. That's what it means to live by faith. There are answers to those questions. There are explanations to why bad things happen to good people, but usually it's so involved that nobody wants to, to pay that much attention. There's one exception to his power. And that's our will. Your will, my will. What I choose to do. He has covenanted or made a promise that he would not interfere with our will. We have the choice to obey him. That's going to be the basis for our rewards in heaven, by the way. I think there will also be a categorical uh, uh, judgment based on our rejection, not negative judgment, but I don't want to go there. It's all too big of words to say. Uh, our human will is something that God won't tamper with. They say that forced love is rape, and so he won't force his love on us. But we have the choice to obey him. Now, since we have that choice, he's just reminded us in, in the Gospels that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, the next slide tells us that he directs us. Since he has all this power, therefore we are to go with power. That's a command to go with power. We have the uh, command from Jesus Christ to go do something with what he has given us. Okay? Now, there's several interesting points in this passage that I want to take some time to discuss, and some of it will be grammar, and I hope it doesn't turn you completely off, but just put up with it and tune in later on. But he says, since I have all authority, leave this mountain. That go is actually a participle, which means it's not the main verb. What it could legitimately and accurately be understood as saying is, while going, make disciples and so on. But while going isn't, doesn't mean that you've got to go out and raise deputation and be a missionary. That's just while every believer, everyone that's trusting Christ as their Savior, while you're living your life, while you're doing what you normally do, after you get off that mountain, just live life, but disciple people. We're going to look at that in a minute. It's while you're living out the faith that you have in God the Father, in Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. While going, while living your life, make disciples everywhere. And then the next uh, slide will show us a little bit more of the details. Go is a direct command to move out. 
while going is a direct command to move out. And the significance of that is huge to the first century audience. And I would suggest it's huge to us because we still have lingering attachments to the Old Covenant. Jesus Christ's command is opposite of what Moses told the Jewish people to do. God, through Moses, told the Jewish people. It's opposite of the Old Covenant. Think with me a minute about that. In fact, I'm going to look at Deuteronomy because it's something that is uh, very surprising in, in a sense that it's different than what God was doing for uh, 2,000 years or so. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, first verse 1 says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord, will God, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth. Excuse me. These, this uh, passage that is in Deuteronomy was told to the Jewish people that were about to enter the promised land. They'd wandered for 40 years. All the people that came out of Egypt had died. This is the second generation now going into the promised land. Leviticus was addressed to the first generation, and he said the same thing there. But these are the people that will actually go in and, and take uh, Jericho and all those other places. He's saying, if you fully obey me, the Lord will bless you. Now, look at verse 8. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land he is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people as he promised you on oath, if you keep his commands uh, of, of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb and the young of your livestock and the crops of your ground and the land he swore to your forefathers to give you. Notice the emphasis on being in the land. See, the Old Covenant was truly a prosperity gospel. It was just like these prosperity preachers are talking about today, except it was real back then. It's not now. If they obeyed, God had blessed them. If they disobeyed, the rest of Deuteronomy 28 will tell them that God will toast them. But the, the point is that they had a prosperity gospel in their land. If you think about what the book of Ruth describes, Ruth left the land with her husband. Her husband was killed, all of her sons were, died. She came back to land and she got blessed again. That's a reflection of the truths of this. They were to stay and obey. The Jews were to stay and obey under the Old Covenant. But this next slide will show us that today we're to go and tell. <laughs> it's opposite. The Jews stayed and obeyed. We're to go and tell. We're to get off the mountain and go make a difference in our world. And it's not some special missionary trip where you've got to gain support. It's as you're living your life. Make disciples. And we're going to look at that in just a minute, what that means. But we're in the opposite direction of the old covenant. Ancient Israel was to stay and obey. We're to go and tell. In the next slide, we'll talk about make disciples. This is actually the main verb of that passage, of the Deuteronomy 28 passage. I mean, Matthew 28 passage. It says, go and make disciples. Discipleship is the emphasis. Discipleship is the emphasis. And I want to make a, a, a rather significant point in the next few slides. But what is discipleship? It's nothing fancy. <laughs> discipleship isn't something you've got to go to seminary to do. Discipleship is simply relationship supercharged with truth. Why don't you uh, be immoral? Why don't you shack up with your neighbor because she's foxy? Well, because I'm a Christian and Jesus Christ says I shouldn't be immoral. 
You just supercharge the relationships that you already have with God's truth. That's discipleship. That's discipleship. It's nothing fancy. It's no program. It's no, no uh, class that you've got to take in seminary to understand. It's simply spending time with someone and then bringing God's word to bear on the life that you're living. Because we all have the same problems. We all struggle financially. We all struggle physically. We all have emotional struggles. We all, we all worry about our kids that aren't doing what we think they should be doing. We all worry about whether or not uh, Grandma or Aunt Matilda is going to die and whether she knows Christ is her Savior. We, all, we share that. That's what church is. So we can come together and help each other and sharpen our focus biblically. And also I would suggest that a discipleship relationship, actually bringing the Word of God to bear on the lives that you live with people that you're already involved with, fulfills the great, second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember last week, Trey was talking about hell? The reality of hell. Well, there's many, I know of two, preachers that say that there, are no, there is no hell. Rob Bell is one of them. What does that do? It takes away the punishment, you know? It just dissolve that so we can all just live, love, laugh, and enjoy life. That's not biblically accurate. He's a heretic in that point. If we love people and we believe that hell is real, we need a disciple of man. We need to tell them that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through him. That's how that applies. These counterfeit gospels that Trey is going through. By the way, Trey is a great, outstanding preacher. That's one of the reasons this church should be bubbling and busting over at the seams. He is outstanding. You, you, I hope you appreciate what you have. But that's probably why he asked me to preach, so you would appreciate him more. But, you know, the point is that, that, uh, that we, we, have, we have news that is eternal, that is absolutely important. If we love our neighbor as ourselves, we sure should tell them about that. That's discipleship, folks. That's bringing God's truth to bear on the lives we already have. And how awkward is that? <laughs> you know, I can, I can prove that what I'm saying is God's plan, because how difficult is it to bring up biblical truth on the job, sitting over coffee? How hard is that? Don't you feel like you're really being stupid? Oh, this guy, you know, he's going to laugh, you know. I don't know what I'm, I don't, what if he asks me a question I can't answer? I still have that problem. I got more degrees than I know what to do with. The, the whole point is that discipleship is simply doing what you can with what you have. You can't do more than you know, but you can do what you do know. Discipleship is simply supercharging a relationship with truth. The next slide will show us that neither baptism nor teaching carry the same weight of command as the go and the disciple. That's something, again, a grammar I was telling you about. The way the passage is set up, while going, make disciples. Discipleship is the main aspect, and that's to happen while you're living life. And this is two possibilities, really. It's either means or manner, which is the way you get it done. This is what you should do when you're discipling somebody. Tell them you've got to get baptized and teach them that they uh, need to obey uh, all the things that Jesus told them. That could be, and probably is, what it's talking about. It could be the result. It could be what happens after they have absorbed that truth. After you've done your discipleship, the people should want to get baptized. After you've done the discipleship, the people should want to obey. It doesn't really matter, but those are a couple of possibilities. But it's not as big an emphasis as the going and making disciples. In fact, when you're talking about what is uh, next slide, 
it's, it's, baptism is baptism by immersion. And in the first century, there wasn't any real option. They didn't know about sprinkling, I guess, or they didn't know about pouring. Everybody was immersed. Now, I will tell you a question you don't ask a Baptist church is why do you have to be immersed to be a member of this church? That, that's one of the things you don't ask. Because if baptism satisfies the one being baptized, if you were sprinkled and you think that was a significant indication of your conversion experience, fine. You're the only one that it has to really prove anything to. It's a point of demarcation where you move from unsaved to saved. Baptism is a major part of our faith walk. <laughs> Immersion is the way it was done. But it's not the only possible way of being effective in your demarcation, in your statement to society. I believe in immersion. I want immersion. I, will, I was immersed. But I won't say that somebody that was sprinkled didn't have it done right. You've got to have it redone. Because if it's meaningful to them, that's what it takes. Now, it's significant that uh, baptism is very important. Jesus specified that as the first step of discipleship. In fact, if you think of Acts 2.38, they link it together. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. I'm sure you've had preachers tell you about how convoluted that is, how big a problem that makes, because I believe you're saved by faith alone, with no works. Put baptism in there, all of a sudden you're working to do something. How do you explain it? My answer to that, and this is just my answer after doing a little bit of research about it, Faith and baptism was so related to the apostles, to the first century people, that you just did that because that's what you do. Just like you come to church because that's what you do sometimes. You know, you just you got saved, you got baptized because their society was so vile and so corrupt and it was such a pagan society, a lot like ours. Uh, you, just, you just have to be baptized to show that you're no longer part of that. I have met people here in our community have told me they have not been baptized, believers now, who have told me they have not been baptized because they didn't want to cause problems in the family that was a member of a different, rather large denomination that attended a big stone building. That is exactly what baptism is supposed to do. <laughs> hey, I'm a Christian and I'm going to stand for it. In fact, if you read Philippians 2, it says that our stand for truth, our obnoxious in your face, yeah, I'm right, you're wrong, stand for truth, is a mark that God is going to judge those people that don't agree with us. It's an interesting study sometimes, Philippians 2. It also says right after that, it's appointed on you not only to believe on Christ, but to suffer for him. And Paul was in prison because he did that. But the point is that baptism is a big part of salvation. If you're a believer and have not been baptized, you really need to do something about that. And the next side is going to say that whatever is holding you back, if you've trusted Christ and you haven't been baptized, that very well may be the obstacle that's keeping you from additional growth and spiritual blessing. I can't say that it is. I won't go out on that limb. But baptism is Jesus Christ's own stated first step in discipleship. It's a primary part. And whatever the baptism is, whether it's means or result, it doesn't really matter. Just do it. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't been baptized, you need to do that. And the next, next uh, point on the slides is teaching. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teaching obedience. Uh, next slide. Uh, that's Jesus' commands. That equals the New Testament. 
that equals holiness. We mentioned in Sunday school this morning that what has more authority, the red letters or the black letters in your Bible? Jesus Christ's words mean more than the bullying literature? Uh, no, it doesn't. The Bible is God's word. It's all inspired. It's all authoritative. It's all inerrant. And that is what we need to teach our disciples, and we ourselves need to obey. Jesus undoubtedly tells us to be holy. But I want to ask you a question. In our culture, in our community here in Cisna Park, I think that there is another danger. And Matthew 22, 37 to 40 says, Love God and your neighbor as yourself. That's the greatest command, and the second is like unto it. But how does that line out with, the next slide would be Romans 14. Because I think that something we have to struggle with, and I personally do, is legalism, judging people. You know, hey, you don't look, smell, or taste like I do. You can't be right. <laughs> You've got to do it my way. That's exactly what the Bible says don't do. Romans 14 says, hey, don't worry about the other guy. Just make sure you don't cause him to stumble. That whole idea of what do you look like... In fact, I've talked to my wife. If, uh, some people have suggested I need to write a book about my testimony. If I was going to write a book, I think I'd write a book about what does Jesus Christ look like? Because what does it look like to be a Christian? Am I not a Christian because I don't have a tie on? I had to wear one for three years. Are you a Christian because you came here in jeans? What does it look like? Don't worry about the other guy. Just make sure you don't cause him to stumble. Verse 4 in Romans 14 specifically says, don't judge another man's servant. And the, the kicker in that verse is at the end of it says, because his master will make him stand. That means if you're trusting Christ as your Savior, and I'm trusting Christ as my Savior, you don't have to worry about me because Jesus Christ is going to have his will in my life. It's him that works in me to do and accomplish his good will. Same with you. Legalism is terrible. I think that's the other aspect of the enemy's attack on true Christianity. I think one side of the fence is liberalism, where they don't even say Jesus Christ was God, the Bible isn't the word of God, you can't know liberalism. Legalism, on the other hand, is the other side of that two-pronged attack, where, hey, you've got to do it this way or you're wrong. That's what I think these passages talk about. And the next slide brings up Galatians 5, 2 to 4, and I'd like to read that, actually because I do do a hermeneutical gymnastic here that I want to make you aware of. And in 5, 2 to 4, Galatians 5, 2 to 4, it says, Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Do you understand the weight of what he is saying? He's saying if these guys are doing something physically to get right with God, they've blown the advantage of Christianity. <clears throat> now what I do, and I told you I do a hermeneutical gymnastic, I'll take the rap for this before Jesus Christ when I stand there. I think circumcision that he specifies, if you are allow yourself to be circumcised, I think that is a categorical statement that means legalism. Because in the book of Galatians, he talks about things you eat, people you hang out with, as well as the physical act of circumcision. I think that circumcision is definitely the term used, but I think it can be legitimately expanded to be legalism. How do you work that out? 
I don't know that. Because this person thinks that you have to look like this and go to this specific church, does that mean they can't be saved or Christ is no value to them? I don't know that. At that point, it's God's call. Just like somebody that's living a life like hell and says, oh, I know Christ. Can I say he doesn't know Christ? I don't know his heart. Maybe he's just backslidden. I don't know that. That's God's call. It works both ways. I've actually told a man that I know here in town that I would prefer to hang out with the people that hang out at Garfields than the people that hang out at a particular Bible study that was going on because those people were so legalistic. At least I know the people at Garfield are being real. But how does this whole idea of uh, not judging fall into this passage today? I think that we're supposed to teach the people we're disciples to disciple people, not to judge them. It's Spirit of God's work to transform us into Christ's likeness. It's the Spirit of God that's going to make me something I'm not, make you something you're not. The Spirit of God is going to bring us into conformity with Christ's likeness. I can tell you this is what the Word says. The Bible says this, and I trust that God will use that Word to bring change and to make a difference in our lives. But we need to teach our disciples to disciple people, not to judge them. Now the next slide brings up another thing that I think is a distortion of the Great Commission. And that's why I'm taking the time to do it. Where is evangelism? You thought about that? I've heard many, 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 many missionary speakers say, oh, the Great Commission is my call to be an evangelist, to go tell everybody about Jesus Christ. You know what? It's not specified. In fact, it's only used three times in the Bible. Twice to refer to living at the house of an evangelist, and twice to doing the work of an evangelist. Singular. Plural. It's those that are gifted as evangelists. Evangelism is something that is a necessary component of discipleship. But I will argue that it is not the focus of discipleship. I think that when you make the emphasis of the Great Commission evangelism, you're distorting the Scripture. Next slide will help explain that, I think because it takes relationship out of the gospel presentation. You know, how many of you have been approached by a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or anybody that's of a differing uh, persuasion, and right away you write them off, you blow them off. That's exactly what people of the world that aren't Christians do to us. Because they know, I just want to get a notch on his Bible, huh? Uh, he, he, He shared the gospel with me. See, if you want to bring somebody to a saving faith of Jesus Christ, that's a great thing. That is absolutely the best motivation in the world. But if you're just looking to put a notch on your Bible case, hey, I shared the gospel with 15 people this week, I think that's totally wrong. Also, some people think that, uh, I'm, I'm, oh, uh, next slide. If the goal is to share the gospel with someone, it can be good. But if you're just trying to show how holy you are, because you can say, oh, I shared the gospel 15 times this week, I think that's wrong motivation. Maybe you think I gave away so many tracts, so that makes me holy. I think that's wrong motivation. If There are people that are gifted evangelists, and I think that's a major part of their perspective. But I think there's a misunderstanding of that. I think that other people, next slide, could say that we have a misunderstanding of doing the work of the Holy Spirit. Because I get to know somebody in a garage or at a parts house, where they, they see that they get the wrong parts for me time after time, and I, I don't cuss them out, maybe that's opening a door 
where I can tell them, hey, you know, Jesus Christ died for you. Come on to church. Let me, let me tell you more about Jesus Christ. You know, I'm not trying to cram the Bible down their throat. I've done that. I've done that. When I was first saved, the preacher that I sat under said that every encounter you meet on the street was God's planned design for you to share the gospel. Now, what he didn't know is who I was. And so I actually did that. I, everybody I met, I shared the gospel with. I'd never been knocked off my feet. I carried a 32 Beretta and I had a tack dog. I did not worry about getting hurt. I did that until I realized, what am I doing? It's not working. You know, when, at what point do you say, hey, I've got to reevaluate my bases here? Well, you know, that's, that's the truth. If you're, if you're trying to do it for some personal satisfaction or glory, I think that's wrong. I think that what we need to do is... Uh, Consider the fact that the Great Commission is an emphasis on discipleship. Now, I think that it is most definitely a part. Evangelism is most definitely a part of discipleship, but it is not the focus. Next slide is because that gives us confidence in the power. That confidence is what I lack when I don't want to say something about God's truth in a relationship that I already have. That's discipleship. Why do I do it? Because I don't really believe that Jesus Christ is going to bail me out of that. <laughs> You know, what do you do if they ask something that you don't know? Oh, goodness gracious, more school. You know, no, you just say, I don't know. I'll go look it up. But the confidence has to be in the power of Jesus Christ, who is with us always. This is why we can afford to accept others. I can afford to talk to you if you disagree with me. Why? Because hopefully we can resolve this. If this is our authority, we can. Jesus Christ is always with us, even to the end. Next slide. When we feel like it, when we don't feel like it. How many of us just don't feel right? You know, we don't, we don't feel like I can share. Well, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is still with us. When we wonder, hey, did I do that right? When I first got saved, I crammed the Schofield Reference Bible down my father's throat. He was the Rambo of the 40s. And he basically regurgitated and told me he didn't need Jesus Christ for the first 70 years of his life or 60 years of however old he was. He didn't need him now. I did everything wrong. Jesus Christ is still with us. When we realize we don't do it wrong, whether we realize we did it all right, it doesn't matter. Jesus Christ is with us to the end of the age. That's the creator God. Next slide. The creator God who has all natural power. All supernatural power. Satan himself bows at the, and grovels, I would say, at the feet of Jesus Christ. The most powerful thing that we can imagine is with us. Person, not thing, person. He is directing us to do something that he won't dink with. He won't force me to share the gospel. He won't force me to make disciples. He won't force me to get off my spiritual mountain. He tells me that's what he wants me to do. But it's my option to obey. It's your option to obey. It's your option to stand for truth. The next slide is the conclusion, or takeouts. The church is God's powerhouse. That's you. That's me. We are the way God has planned to impact our world. A main point of Jesus' ministry, notice I just said a main point, is that relationship with God is much, much, much more important than appearance. doesn't matter what you look like. doesn't matter about where they hang out. There might even be a, a, a believer or two at Garfield's. 
God commanded us to live in our culture, but to make disciples, bring truth to bear on our existing relationships. You don't have to be on missionary support to have a discipleship ministry. Just bring truth to bear on the life of the people you already know. The all-powerful God of creation is right here with each of us. Next slide, please. Let's get off our mountain and go and tell. We're not supposed to stay and obey. We're supposed to go and tell. Jesus Christ powers the church through discipleship. We are the powerhouse. But let's not make people want to cancel their heavenly insurance policies, like that lady in the introduction. Let's tell people about Jesus Christ. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, thank you that you are our God and that you are a merciful God. Thank you for working with me and my weaknesses and wrong choices for so many years. And Lord, I just praise you for the opportunity to share this truth. I pray that you'll impact each of us, cause us each to be disciple makers, to bring your truth to bear on the relationships that we already have and allow this church to grow. Praise God for uh, Trey and ask you to bless him, keep him safe and bring him home safely. I pray that his ministry there might be as effective as it is here. Lord, thank you again for this opportunity. We pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.